Welcome to the Cell Intel podcast, where we explore how single cell and spatial analysis methods are being adopted and are accelerating discoveries in life science research. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Episode 9, Researching Therapies for Type 1 Diabetes, Part 2. We are continuing the conversation with Drs. Todd and Megan Brusco about their work on the cellular mechanisms of type 1 diabetes and their search for potential preventative and their search for pre- <laughs> and their search for potential preventative treatments. If you missed part one, you can find it at 10xgenomics.com forward slash cell dash intel or on your favorite podcast platform. It's episode eight. All right, so you guys touched upon this you know, already to a degree, um, just how single cell resolution has been important in, in your research with, you know, mapping out the clonotypes and, and looking at the phenotypes and heterogeneity that's in your, your tissue samples. Um, but, you know, what really, what was the deciding point for you to, to move into single cell resolution? So I think, uh, you know, personally for me, you know, having access to tissues here at the University of Florida from organ donors was the critical deciding point because what that meant for us was that, you know, we had uh, organ donations from families, um, you know, for whatever reason, their their relative passed away and we're able to get as, extract as much information as we can from those patients. And we have a limited amount of sample to actually work with. So we really wanted to maximize the amount of information that we could get from this incredibly valuable gift of, of these uh, families. So to me, I mean, I think that was, you know, one of the, the major things. And then we just really needed to understand, you know, from the context of type one diabetes, what is it about the cells that are actually in the target tissue itself from, uh, you know, their transcriptional signature, their uh, epigenetic signature, you know, the repertoire of those cells, the, the T cell receptor, or the B cell receptor. What is it about, you know, those unique cell populations that really give us an indication of, you know, pathogenic mechanisms at play? Mm-hmm. Megan, what, what are your thoughts? <laughs> um, I can add on to that, that um, one thing that is tricky in autoimmunity is we talked about self-reactive T cells and that it's actually normal to have self-reactive T cells. People who don't have autoimmune disease have plenty of self-reactive T cells. And part of the stage of development in the thymus for T cell development is selection of ability to react with self. But if you react too strongly with self, then that T cell is eliminated. That can dysfunction and result in autoimmunity, but in general, it's typical to have autoreactive cells. The issue in type one in particular is that those will be infrequent in the periphery and hard to find. So being able to identify differences in those cells at low numbers is gonna be really crucial for us. And when we can access them clinically, where we can have repeat samples and look at people as they progress, being able to access small amounts of sample is great. So adding that to what we do in tissues and what we have access to in the clinic, we can look for those cells in the tissue site and see how their phenotype may change in the periphery to see if we can see biomarkers of disease progression in those cells, or if we can identify a sentinel population that is a little bit easier to see in the periphery and be able to continue to track both progression to disease or response to therapy over time. 
Mm -hmm. So you talk about these cells kind of just being at low abundance. And so how are you currently addressing that? Are you, you know, facts purifying those? Yeah, when we have interest there, we have used um, in the paper or the upcoming paper we are working on there, we have used Dextromers as well from Immudex oh, with, cool. with 10X to look uh -huh. there. And then as we've kind of evolved in our studies, we've determined that it's probably important to just go ahead and look at as many cells that are there as possible so we can really see kind of the total immune environment that we're looking at versus looking at only the things that we have recognized. Uh-huh. And so, uh, you know, I checked out Todd's Twitter and <laughs> I saw a, a picture of, you know, a, it's a, a mixture of things. <laughs> <laughs> Lots Mine's of fishing worse. pictures as well. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, I did see, I did see a picture of, of a, a new, new instrument. So you guys have a, you, you guys have the, the Chromium X. And so, you know, of course, with the, the Chromium X, this is 10X's newest instrumentation, and it runs all of the standard assays, three prime single cell gene expression, five prime immune profiling, attack and multi-ohm, but it also has high throughput um, uh, capability as well. And so are you guys planning on, you know, profiling just more cells using the HT assays? Yeah, I often say I can't think of something we aren't planning to do around here with these instruments. Um, so we we have our projects really run the gamut from looking for those really hard to find small numbers of cells uh -huh. versus the project like HubMap where the focus is on getting as many cells from an organ as possible, uh -huh. where we just need to be able to look for low abundance cells and and identify what they they look like in each organ to look for organ specific signatures. Um, you know, in the thymus in particular, 90% of those cells aren't actually going to exit. So then we need to either pre-select, which is, you know, less preferred sometimes you want to be able to just look at the entire environment of the tissue mm -hmm. um, and run more cells so that we can kind of see the entire contents of that. So we definitely go both ends of the scale and everything in between as well in terms of projects and applications that we're using this for. Yeah, it's it's um, it kind of gets back to your question about frequency of these cells. So we know from tetramer and flow cytometry that the frequency of autoreactive cells is very low in circulation. So there are some ways to enrich for that, right? We can we can select and fact sort memory cells. Uh, but at the end of the day, to really get a sense of um, what these cells look like and, and get some understanding of the diversity of the repertoire, um, you just need you need more cell numbers to, yeah. to really hit those types of questions appropriately. What, what types, just in your current study, the one that you're you're going to publish soon, uh, what what number of cells would you say is um, did you need to hit for those dextromer studies? So dextromers, um, you know, autoreactive cells in general can range depending upon where someone is and in, in the disease process and what the antigen is. But they can be as rare as one in fifty thousand to one in a hundred and fifty thousand. Uh -huh. uh, so, sort of a very rare uh, cell population. And like I said, you can you could potentially enrich that slightly by selecting memory uh, T cells, ones that have already encountered antigen and, and perhaps uh, expanded somewhat mm -hmm. in response to antigen. Uh, 
but yeah, it's, uh, we don't know. <laughs> right. So, so sometimes you just have to take a, a deeper sample and, and yeah. look at the overall repertoire to understand what that frequency really is. Uh huh. Okay. And so just for our listeners who aren't familiar with, um, I guess the, the MHC, um, or antigen specificity application on the five prime immune profiling solution. It's basically taking a, um, an MHC dextromer that's been paired with a peptide antigen. And then you can get not only uh, the TCR, um, as well, you get the TCR as well as the antigen peptide that it's specific for on a single cell basis. Um, so paired um, alpha beta for, for the TCR. Uh, but, you know, Megan, in um, kind of discussing before this uh, podcast started, you mentioned that, you know, you had a lot of experience um, using facts during your graduate work. So what surprised you most when you started using 10x solutions? Surprised me the most? Um, I think probably the level of trepidation I had to do it. I'm, I've been a bench scientist a long time. It's definitely a new technology. And I, I think when I started, I was actually incredibly impressed with the nature of the kits being so user-friendly. The, mm-hmm. um, the experimental protocols are incredibly well planned out and visualized as well. And mm-hmm. over time, I've, I've seen improvements in that even with, you know, the 10X University online and being able to see video demos of, of the um, protocol and all of that, because you are, I think a lot of people using this are working with precious samples. I think it can be really hard to kind of jump in. Um, and so as long as you have decent hands on the bench and can pipette, I think it's it's really accessible to use. Um, it's it's definitely got a learning curve on the analysis end, I think is really where we you know are continuing to evolve. And I think the entire field is continuing to evolve in understanding how many samples we can work with together and working with the technical variation. And so moving on to the X, hope, we're hoping that we can kind of use the newer reagents that have come available to do cell plexing and be able to, to um, kind of integrate donors ahead of time and be able to look at, you know, look at the donor diversity in the same space by running these samples together. So I think mm-hmm. um, we've really been excited to, to move up to the bigger platform, even though it's going to be, you know, 10 to 100 times the data per, per run. But mm-hmm. we're excited about that. Mm-hmm. And are you guys, um, well, so you mentioned that, uh, you know, locate, or I guess mapping where the diseased cells are throughout the tissue is is something that you guys are interested in. Um, do you see any use for something like the Visium Spatial Gene Expression Solution in your research? Yeah, we do have a graduate student working using that, um, adapting it to the different tissues that we're looking at. And so I think um, the combination of the spatial approach along with single cell gives you, you know, maybe more throughput for a kind of tissue 3D environment, but what I think the um, spatial platform gives us is the ability to look at stromal cells that sometimes are really difficult to pull out of tissue without damaging them or or skewing their signature towards stress or digestion. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then it just becomes your marker genes are very limited in in number and not particularly informative because so much of it is going to be driven by stress signature. So, um, and then in the context of type 1 diabetes, the ability to actually look at the inflammatory lesion. So the site of seeing T cells at at the site of the pancreas is something that we're interested in pursuing. And so we have a student working on that in particular. Um, What we know about 
insulitis or the inflammation of the pancreas and diabetes is that someone can be diabetic clinically and be on insulin, they can have functional islets in their pancreas that are appear to be making insulin. And the next lobe of the pancreas over, they can have be completely destroyed and absent. And in another lobe, they can have ongoing autoimmunity going on within their pancreas. So we, the um, disease has been really well investigated in mice and all of that work has informed us so much. But what we've learned in humans is that we see a difference in how that disease process is occurring. And so when we can actually get to and access that site in particular and look at it, we're, we're really excited about that as well. Oh, that's really cool. I, I was actually um, talking with one of my colleagues about um, adult onset type 1 diabetes. And so would that sort of be a similar scenario where most of the pancreas is normally functioning and some of it's damaged and it's like compensated and then at some point it just, you know, becomes decompensated and and it just is a later in life type of a thing. Yeah, I mean, so we've done some studies on genetics of type 1 diabetes and and one of the things that we've seen in those studies is that we can create sort of a comprehensive score of someone's overall genetic risk. Mm -hmm. And it seems that uh, the higher that uh, genetic burden is, the younger patients develop oh, disease. Okay. Whereas, uh, you know, lower sort of risk HLA predominantly can have people develop disease at a much later age and it's probably more regulated and it's a slower loss of beta cells the older you are when you develop disease. Mm -hmm. But back to your question about uh, spatial transcriptomics, I mean, I think this is a really exciting idea, right? That we could take tissues from these organ donors and keep the spatial information intact mm -hmm. and then overlay lots of different sort of technologies to really understand what is it about the genetics of an individual? What is it about the epigenetics perhaps? And then down to transcripts and ultimately understanding the protein signatures, you know, and mm -hmm. with standard staining of, of tissues, I think is really, once we begin to integrate these multiple sort of technologies, I think we're going to get a much better sense of what's actually going on in the pancreas of, of these individuals that develop type one. Mm-hmm. It's time for Little Gems. You guys have been busy. The rate of new publications featuring 10x genomics technologies continues to accelerate. We are trying to keep up with our publication library, where you can search key publications by product and or research area and or keywords. For a list of key articles that leverage our single cell immune profiling kit, including doctors Todd and Megan Brusco's recent publications, go to 10xgen forward slash gem9. That's 10xgen as in genomics and gem9 as in little gems. And now on with the show. And, you know, one thing I wanted to ask you guys, since you're both um, with the Diabetes Institute, uh, so what role does the Diabetes Institute play in the research community in Florida? Yeah, so we have, you know, we're, we're, we're in the process of developing a, a single cell sort of working group here. So I think the important thing for us uh, has been 
understanding that it really it helps to have a community of individuals and users because we all learn from each other. We learn what is the best way to process tissues. We learn what are the best workflows to analyze data. And it's really become an integrated group of biologists, um, biostatisticians, sort of bioinformatics people. And building that community, I think, is really critical for us so that we can offer it to other groups that are interested in lupus and sepsis here at the University of Florida, sort of building upon much of the expertise that we're learning from type one. Mm-hmm. And Megan, I noticed that you deposit some of your protocols on uh, protocols.io. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and so is this, is this also, you know, um, you know, especially for like the um, hub map, like, is that just important that you have, you know, a standardized set of protocols and how you dissociate your tissues as well as how you analyze the data? Yes, I think so. Um, so that those protocols.io links are specific to the HubMap protocols that we have. And so those are associated with the data that are within the HubMap portal and released to the public. So I think it's it's critical that as a community and the more people are open with all of their protocols, the better things are. And you spoke to the methods being really clear in the paper as well. I think that's um, it's always an interest of mine to make sure our science is as open access as possible. So that's mm-hmm. part of my enjoyment of, of these things. And it's definitely more work to make sure things are open, doing things like publishing your protocols separately to IO and um, making sure your methods are really consistent. But I, I think it's also basically imperative at this point when we have these large scale data sets that we're releasing to the community that everyone's as honest as possible about how they analyze it so that we can see the differences because everyone who analyzes the data, it's gonna look a little bit different um, based on your thresholds that you set or whether you decide to keep some cells in just because they may be dying, but you wanna know why or what they were before they died. Um, and I think that's, those may be great questions to ask, but the only way we know if anyone's asking them is, is to look at how they're prepping their samples, to look at how they're processing their data. Mm-hmm. And so what advice would you give to somebody who is new to single cell and considering getting started? Sample prep. <laughs> it's optimize your sample prep ahead of time. I mean, um, peripheral blood has worked incredibly well for us pretty much every time we do that. We have a long history of isolating cells from peripheral blood in our group. Mm-hmm. Tissues are going to be a lot more difficult. And so looking at the quality of the sample you can generate from any given tissue and the abundance of the, of the sample or cell type of interest is going to be critical before you start diving into actually doing the assay because you have a limited amount of time where your cells are going to be on ice and they're Mm -hmm. going to be eventually heading towards death while you get everything ready. So getting your sample prep optimized would be first step. And that is what I tell anyone who asks me what what they need to do. And I say, are you getting 80% viable or greater cells? Mm -hmm. And um, the next thing would be to, if you have access to a cell sorter, we're fortunate that we, we can go on a cell sorter and, and use that to clean up our sample ahead of time if, if you want to proceed with a sample that has lower viability, but you want to get what's alive out of it. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, so that's pretty what, much yeah. the main and so thing for you, me. You guys work with, um, you know, you mentioned that you get organ donations and um, especially for the HubMap. And so, um, you know, 
are you guys process do those tissues get preserved in any way or are they immediately shuttled to your guys's lab for processing so they're um maintained in the flushing solution that's used in the OR, either uh-huh. UW, um, and sometimes they're put into RPMI and shipped on ice. And so we have kind of strict criteria for accepting a case after collection. If it goes, we usually get most cases within 18 hours of cross clamp in the OR mm-hmm. and then um, process from there. And then on our end, we have some immediate rapid fixation processes and then cell isolations that occur. So our um, we have a a core of p- people who are dedicated to these projects who come in whenever the, the shipment arrives via courier and process those samples. And so I, I have a team of technicians and we have the uh, NPOD group also that has a team of incredibly skilled technicians who lose a lot of sleep making sure that we get these processed. Yeah. But to, to address your question uh, even more, the tissues, um, we try and analyze as much as we can fresh, right? Uh-huh. Because that's gonna give us the, some of the best signal, but a large part of the effort is really to cryopreserve samples for other investigators. So uh-huh. NPOD is, a, is an organization distributes samples throughout the world, really, to investigators that study type one diabetes. So that we, we, we store pancreas in all kinds of forms, we, we store the spleen and the draining lymph nodes of, of many of these uh, organ donation tissues. And then uh, even some of our other uh, tissue projects, a, a big part of that involves uh, storage of tissues for, for other uh, collaborators and investigators. Mm-hmm. What is the significance of the thymus, pancreas, and, and spleen, so these tissues that you guys are, are you know, performing the atlas on um, in type 1 diabetes? So the pancreas is the site of the autoimmunity. So that's kind of our central organ that we're interested in, but the other organs we collect are involved in the process of immune development and that immune development can lead to the autoimmunity that we see. So T cells are selected and matured within the thymus and then they proceed to the periphery where they then circulate and are you know, found in spleen and lymph nodes, or they establish residency in the tissues and then are maintained there. And so all of those cells may play a part in the progression or control of the autoimmune process. And understanding how all of those cells end up where they end up is, is a crucial part of understanding auto- autoimmune pathogenesis. So you would expect to find um, those self-reactive T cells within um, you know, the pancreas or the spleen um, during during disease? Yes, we would. Okay. So, you know, we talked about the HubMap and, and you know, the cord blood studies. Um, so, you know, what else is on the horizon for you guys? Yeah, so for us, it's, it's, um, it's a combination of things. It's always about understanding biomarkers. So uh-huh. trying to understand... W- can we find signatures of patients that are going to go on to develop disease? Um, It's about intervening in that process to to block disease progression. And then ultimately, you know, where we want to get is to be able to model the disease process and to then eventually reverse it, right, Mm -hmm. is is the ultimate challenge. And that's going to take not just people like us that do immunology, but beta cell biologists that are working in the stem cell field to restore some of the beta cells after they've been lost. And, and then working with immunologists to 
to make beta cells that you know are cloaked from the immune system or protected from the immune system to really restore insulin producing beta cells. Well, it looks like we're at time. Megan and Todd, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today and talking to us about your research. I definitely learned a lot talking to you. And I also want to thank all of our listeners tuning in. Um, and I want to mention to our listeners to check out Todd and Megan's Twitter page. That's at Brusco Lab, all one word spelled B-R-U-S-K-O-L-A-B. Thank you. Thank you so much. You can find more episodes of Cell Intel Podcast at 10xgenomics.com forward slash cell dash intel. Subscribe if you want to be notified about new episodes, have the opportunity to give some feedback, or participate in polling questions or trivia contests for a chance to win a goodie and have your name, institution, and research area mentioned on the air. If you liked our podcast, your friends probably will too, so let them know about us. Thank you for listening and keep seeking out the possibilities.